Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning and good to be seen by some of you who are joining online. And thank you for your enthusiasm about this study of the book of Revelation. I've heard from many of you, you're a gung-ho congregation, and I'm excited to go through this study with you at praying that it encourages us and equips us as we move through this period of suffering that we have been in and into even greater effectiveness in our city and in our world. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 8. Last week we gave an overview of the whole book. I gave you four points that would help you uh, get access to this book, organize it in your mind, four visions uh, standing around the throne of Jesus Christ that that King uh, guides us and He protects us and He vindicates us and He, and he um, is coming again to celebrate us. And so now I want to go back to chapter 1 and we're going to study these verses. We didn't read them in the first, uh, the first service uh, last week. We just read selected verses through the whole book. But I want to study in detail this first chapter, verses 1 through 8. And you, if you just skim down, you notice that at early on, John says, if you read this book aloud, you will be blessed by it. And even if you're not an expert in the book of Revelation, you may say, now, John, well, wait a minute, I know enough about the book of Revelation that this doesn't make sense, that I'm going to read this book and be blessed by it. I, I have every anticipation of reading this book and being scared to death by it. John is able to say this because he is delivering revelation from Jesus. It is the motivation for this book that explains how we can read it and be blessed by it. And I would be so bold as to say that in this book, we find in this motivation that gives us this book, the antidote for anxiety. I want you to look with me. Verse 1, chapter 1, John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his Father, to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. In the church I previously pastored, there was a, a, a little boy at the time, an elementary schooler, one of our covenant children, who went with his grandparents to worship in a local church and to tour the building. It was a particularly beautiful building, and that church is very different from our theological tradition, and one of the differences is that they believe it's very important to communicate uh, spiritual truths through iconography, through icons, through uh, pictures, engravings, and and uh, and stained glass, and and um, and uh, carvings. And after the service, the little boy's grandfather said, uh, "Garrett, I want you to, I want you to to stand here in the middle of this this sanctuary. I want you to look around and tell me what you see." And everywhere he looked, there was an image of Jesus. And uh, Garrett said, uh, <clears throat> well, I see Jesus. What does he look like, his grandfather said? Well, he is very solemn. Now, he was proud of that word. He just learned it as a vocab word that week. He's very solemn, he said. And the grandfather said, no, he's not solemn. He's angry. He's angry with you, and he's frustrated with all of us, and he intends to judge us because we've disappointed him. Garrett took all of that in. He went home. He'd been well-formed in his church and in his catechism classes and by his gospel-centered parents. And he said to his mom and dad, he related to his mom and dad what his grandfather had said, and then he said, I don't think grandfather was right. I don't think Jesus is angry with me. I think Jesus loves me. Isn't that the song we learn? He said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells us so. There are many people who think that God is only and always angry with them, that He's always disappointed, that even Jesus is disappointed all the time. Or maybe you look at the circumstances you're in, the losses you've encountered, the situation we're going through as a culture through the world, and you say, Jesus is angry with us. What can I do to get Him off my back? Or is there any hope whatsoever? Or like Martin Luther before he discovered the gospel, I hate God because I can never please Him. Maybe that's where you are. And what you must hear in this passage of Scripture, as you will hear throughout this book, is that God loves you, and He has proven it through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He sent one whole person of the Trinity, named the Holy Spirit, to pour out the love of God in your heart. Can I just show you how God loves you in Jesus from these verses? He loves you, first of all, by being the revealer. The Revealer, verses 1 through 3. 
Someone who really loves you doesn't keep secrets from you. Someone who really loves you doesn't tell you just what you want to hear. Someone who really loves you tells you what you need and what you must know. And that's what God has done. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus pledges himself by love to tell us what we need to know for life and godliness. Not absolutely everything that you want to know, but everything that you need to know. As captured in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. It's a gift, this revelation. And to his servants, servant doesn't always strike us as positively, but in the Bible, servant refers to, often refers to prophets. It's the way it's used in the book of Revelation. A servant is a prophet. A servant is one with whom God has shared his revelation. A servant is one whom God has drawn to the inside, drawn near to him, that he might tell him what he needs to know. He makes us ministers or servants or prophets of this good word. There are two things you need to, to remember, realize from this passage about the goodness of God, the love of God expressed in His gift of the Word of God. Number one, it is inspired. That's verses 1 and 2. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God, and it, is, it was breathed into those who wrote it down. Peter tells us that in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that the prophets didn't speak by their own interpretation, but they were driven along by the Spirit, and the result was that they wrote down exactly what God wanted. God did that. God, God inspired people to write using their unique human attributes, unique culture, unique vocabulary, unique experiences. And so that the Bible is a very human book, but the words that are written are the words that God wanted to be written for you and me. We could talk a long time about that. We've addressed this, addressed this in the past, but to be assured that when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we mean that what we have is what God intended us to have. And we talk about the infallibility of Scripture, we mean that what we are taught is what is God, what, what is truth. And we can know furthermore that that these 66 books of the Bible have been preserved as long as the church has been a church. And these copies, this, the copies from which we have the Bible we have in front of us, are miraculously preserved. We have more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any work of antiquity. God has gone to these lengths to preserve His revelation, to give to you that you might be instructed without error, that you might be instructed infallibly. He did that because He loves you. Secondly, I want you to hear in this text that, that He loves us through preaching. He says, I want you to read this aloud. We know from, manu from, uh, from evidence of literary characteristics of the Bible throughout that the Bible was written to be read. And we know from the examples of people like Moses and Ezra and others that the Bible was written to be preached. 
Now, preaching isn't, isn't that thing that we do to draw attention to ourselves, but preaching is the work of a minister by which the Word is made plain. That's, what, that's, the, the, word, that's the phrase the Bible use, uses, to make the Word plain. My work is not to entertain you. It's not to impress you with me. And that's not the work of any preacher. The work is to remove the obstacles that keep you from seeing, from understanding the Word as it's written, so that you can see Jesus. That's the work of preaching. And God loves you so much, loves me so much, that He has given us these people who... who Come in the flesh and open the Word so that we can see Jesus. There's a second century document called the Didache that says, whenever the, Bible, whenever the Word is read, there Jesus is present. Wherever the Word is read, there Jesus is present. In theology, we call it the charismatic presence. That it's not, it's not magic. It's not that He's showing up in me, but He is showing up to teach all of us as the Word is read out loud, as, it's, as the obstacles to understanding it are removed. Jesus Himself shows up and forms us, speaks to us. We can't... We can't objectify all that happens when we're regularly under the preaching and hear, the hearing and preaching of God's Word. It's like, it's like stepping into the sun. We know it's good for us. We can't explain everything that happens when we step into the sun. We, can't, we, we, we know that eating is good for us. We can't explain everything that happens to us when we put food in our mouths. We just know it's true. And the same is true with, with preaching. Get yourself regularly under the preaching of God's Word. Not because you're particularly enamored with the preacher or because uh, he's particularly entertaining, but because getting yourself under it means that the Spirit will use it to form you in ways you could never anticipate. The proof that you've been formed by the regular preaching of God's Word comes out in suffering. Suffering is what, is what reveals where we have been misformed or uh, underformed or formed. And it's not an opportunity to feel guilty and say, oh my goodness, but, but there, the cracks are revealed and you say, I need, I need to be formed by God's Word and not so much by my culture anymore, not so much by my opinions, not so much by other people, but by God's Word. God loves you so much. He's given you His Word, given it to you in written form that it could be read out loud, that it could be preached and applied and the benefits of it experienced. God loves you so much, He reveals to you ahead of time what you need to know. You know, one time, I, many years ago, or a number of years ago, I was preparing to go on a mission, international mission trip. I had a very good doctor, and he said, George, we've got to figure out what vaccinations you need before you go to that third world country. I want to make sure you're taken care of. And so he looked through my, my chart, and he said, oh, I forgot this one. You need this one. He said, now listen, I'm going to send the nurse in to give you this, this shot, and it'll be just like a pinprick, no problem, just in and out. And... Uh, great to take care of you. I never saw him again. Then the nurse came in 
And uh, she uh, was pretty austere. And she put her hands on her hips like this. And she said, what did that doctor tell you about this shot? And I said, he said, it's a piece of cake, like a pinprick. She said, oh, no, it's going to hurt like, I can't tell you what she said from the pulpit. And, uh, and then she said, you'll get over it eventually. Take some Tylenol and so forth, but it's going to really hurt. She gave it, and she was exactly right. Now, both of them intended to love me. Her love was a little more helpful than his. What you reveal, what will be revealed to us in the book of Revelation, it's not all, it's not all going to be easy to hear. Jesus is telling us, hell is going to hurt you. Hell is going to try to destroy you. But you must know that I've equipped you with everything you need to endure it. Second way I want you to see that God loves you in Jesus Christ, that He's the ruler. Verses 4 and 5, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He rules over us. This is uh, all three persons of the Godhead are found in these first eight verses. God the Almighty, Jesus Christ, of course, the Son. And any time, I mean, the Spirit is often named in the book of Revelation, but when the seven spirits are mentioned, it's not seven different spirits. It's, a, it's the number seven, the, the number of perfection that the Old Testament believers would have understood, and it's applied to the Spirit of God. Everything that you need is given to you. He is the supreme God is the first point that he makes. He is supreme. He is superior over all things. He is changeless. Your culture is constantly changing. The, the, the earth seems to be shifting under your feet. You can't anticipate anything. You can't get good, good, uh, good information. But God never changes. Those who have made an impact on you spiritually, spiritual leaders, even so-called preachers of the gospel, fail. They turn out to be charlatans. They, they fail miserably. They've done wickedness. They'll let you down. But God never changes. John makes this point in a very interesting way. Grace to you, notice in verse 4, and peace from Him who is and who was and is to come. Now, this is a little bit difficult for us to understand as Americans because we've started mixing up our pronouns. We use objective case pronouns and subjective case pronouns um, less than correctly. We say, him and I went to the store, or, or uh, them two are getting married, and that sort of thing. It's okay. You're going to make it to heaven with improper grammar. It'll be hard, but you'll make it. So, but, but bear with me here a little bit. You'll learn something about English as well as about this verse if you pay attention to the grammar. Because <clears throat> this is proper grammar, grace and peace from, from, that's a preposition, right? And then whatever follows is an object of a preposition. Grace and peace from him who is. But that's not the way John wrote it. John wrote the proposition in Greek is, not, is, is just like English, even more precise. Grace to you and peace from, and in Greek, 
The him should be objective like this. It should be him. But it's not in Greek. It's he. So literally, John says, grace to you and peace from he who is. From he who was and from he who is to come. That's not even right in Greek. What's John doing? John is demonstrating the changelessness of God that, that, um, that He wants us to, to base our faith on. And He's saying with His grammatical construction, God is, God is so great that He can't even be acted on by a preposition. He cannot be the object of any king. He cannot be one who has to respond or react to any movement of any emperor, especially an emperor claiming to be God, as Domitian was. And so John uses improper grammar to make that point. One old commenter, William Barclay, said, John has stayed his heart on the changelessness of God to the point that he uses the defiance of grammar to reinforce the faith. Not only does he, does he do that, he, he uses the wrong verb after who was. Grace and peace from him who, from he who is and he who was. Now, we can't see this so much in English, but in Greek, there are two ways to express that. One would have been, the normal way would have been, he who is becoming. There's no way John's going to give that impression. So the verb he uses effectively says, he who has always been. There's never been a time that he was not, and no one has ever acted upon him so as to change him, and nothing will ever change his character. To him, grace to you and peace. Can I rely on this grace and peace? You bet you can, because it comes from the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. And when you are tempted to forget it, or you think, I can't believe it, I can't endure with it, I'm constantly doubting it, he adds this this comfort of the Holy Spirit. John to the seven churches that are in Asia later will understand in verse 10 that this was the Spirit of God. And then when we look at these seven churches over the next three chapters, each one of them has a candle. That's just the light. That's just the representation of the Holy Spirit. He's saying very simply, every church of Jesus Christ has what they need from the Spirit. It doesn't matter how large your church is. It doesn't matter how small your church is. Every gospel-centered church of the Lord Jesus Christ has everything needed from the, from the Holy Spirit. Every individual within those churches has everything in, is needed. And you know what is needed? It is what the Holy Spirit is said to give us in Romans chapter 5. It is the love of God the Father. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Jewish believer, knowing his Old Testament, would have recognized this imagery immediately. This, they said this would have reminded me of the, of the vision of Zechariah back in Zechariah chapter 4, that seven-pronged, that seven-armed menorah with seven candles. But in Zechariah's vision, 
Each one of those candles has seven conduits feeding it with oil. Seven tubes, you might say, feeding it with oil. Forty-nine different tubes feeding seven lamps. What's the picture? The Holy Spirit overwhelms us with everything we need for life and godliness by the Word read, by the Word preached, by the Spirit bearing witness of our, in our hearts. And He is primarily given to prove to us God loves us. Third thing you have to see in this passage is the very center of the passage, and it's at the end of verse 5. The ultimate proof of His love is Jesus Christ. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The proof that God the Father loves you, the only way you'll ever be convinced of the Father's love and benefit from the Father's love is to receive Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners. The only way to be right with God, the only way to live forever in heaven is to recognize your sin, my sin. And to come saying, there's nothing in my hands I can possibly bring to make you approve of me. So I cling to your cross, substitute the blood of your righteousness for the blood guilt of my sin. And then you will not only know that the benefit of of having your conscience is relieved, but your heart will be encouraged. That God doesn't just say that He loves you. That this wasn't just some empty sacrifice that Jesus made, but God demonstrated, proved His love for you by giving His own Son. And the grace and love doesn't, they don't stop there. He makes us, He brings us into the family, and then He equips us to be the kind of people we hear Michael describing in the, in the video in Indonesia. We are we are evangelists. We are, we are those kingly people who are bringing the kingdom of God to bear on this earth. We, we can tell people how they can also be united to Christ. We can rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of His Son. We can pray down power to change situations on the earth. We can stand in the gap where people are experiencing injustice and we can apply to them the justice of the kingdom. We can can, uh, clothe the cold. We can feed the hungry. We We can minister to the felt needs, the physical needs of this city as we do by the the power of Christ. We can we can we can apply kingdom principles to every discipline where where we're in whether it's computer science or at home or whether it's at the office or, or whether it's in this classroom or, or whether you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, it doesn't matter what you are, you can bring the kingdom of God to bear on that, that area. You can bring redemption there. God includes us in that work. As one person calls it, whole earth evangelism and whole earth discipleship. 
God loves you in Jesus Christ so much that his son died for you. So much so that he rules and supplies for you, that he reveals to you everything that you need to know for life and godliness. A few years ago, I read an article from the San Francisco Chronicle. It was a feature article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a, a woman named Linda, Linda Wilson Allen. She was a bus driver, and she drove the number 45 bus. What intrigued this author of the article was that there are people who stood at the bus stop and let multiple buses go by them going to the same direction, going to the place that they, that they needed to go, but they, they let these buses go by them so that they could get onto Linda Allen's bus, the number 45. So she rode Linda Allen's bus for a while, and, and then she started gathering stories about Linda, like the one about the 90-year-old woman who had bought her groceries and she barely was able to get them to the bus stop, but she certainly couldn't get them up on the bus. And so despite the tight schedule, Linda Allen got off the bus, <clears throat> got all of the groceries, picked them up, brought them on, and then helped the little lady onto the bus. Or the other one when she came to pick up someone who was trying desperately to figure out her way around San Francisco, couldn't do it. She was obviously a visitor. And Linda said, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. You can't be at home. You can't be alone for Thanksgiving. You're new in this city. You need to come to my house. Numerous stories like that. And then the favorite one, some people just stayed on the bus to the end of the end of the route just so they could hear the ritual that Linda Allen would go through every day at the end of her route. She would say, well, that's it, folks. That's all. Take care. I love you. People rode the bus because they wanted to hear her say, I love you. And they loved her in response so much, they gave her flowers, they, they loaned their vacation homes to her, they gave her scarves to accent her uniform, they loved her too. They let multiple buses go by so they could wait for the number 45 and hear from a bus driver, I love you. Turns out she also would wake up at 2.30 every morning and get on her knees and pray for all of her passengers. She loved them. We're desperate to be loved. And many of us are looking in all the wrong places for it. And what King Jesus says at the threshold of this book is to say, let all those buses go by, all those other loves, all those other things, all those other people promising to bring you love. You let them go by. I am the one who loves you and will love you and never disappoint you. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would conquer us with your love. For the first time, that person who has never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, would this be the day of their adoption into your family? Or for the thousandth time, for that 
prodigal who is running away from you and in the far country, for, for that Christian who is in, in despair, tempted to give up today, tempted to turn fully into their cynicism and, and their bitterness against you, would you, by the work of your Spirit, seal to their hearts and minds that Jesus loves them, the Father loves them, the Spirit loves them too. In Jesus' name we pray it, and God's people said, amen.